This is Edge Cases, the podcast about the grumpier side of software development. Mostly, but not always, I've been Featuring me, I'm Andrew Pontius. But for the second time in this podcast history, Wolf will not be joining us this week. He's feeling a little under the weather. Instead, I have a guest co-host this week. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Peter Hosey. I am a Mac developer. Um, basically, I do a lot of small projects. I don't really have any single big thing that I can claim for myself. Uh, so well, we'll talk more about that in a second. But uh, this is episode 35. It's Sunday, February 3rd, 2013. And uh, the topic for this week is the strange and wacky world of quality assurance engineers. So, uh, but yeah, so um, first let's uh, have a little recap. So frequent listeners of the show will recall that uh, Peter Hosey is actually a commonly referenced name around these parts. Uh, So in episode 20 from September of 2012, the tabs and spaces of Outrageous Fortune, I spent a decent amount of time going over your uh, 2007 post, Tabs versus Spaces. Um, And the sequel, Tabs versus Spaces Redux. I don't remember whether you referenced it at the time, but... Oh. I have two posts on that subject. Gosh, hmm. yes, I should I should go read that if I haven't read that <laughs> yet. Um, but also that uh, that episode contains the alternate title, one of my favorites. If you align your colons, you're hosied. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then, uh, and then I also went on to to reference your name in t- episodes twenty six and thirty four, both from two thousand twelve, uh, because you had started to tweet about uh, adopting app code. Yep. Now, I did an episode about AppCode, episode 12 from August of 2012, a little slice of Windows in my IDE. And from that episode, um, uh, I did conclude that I would not be using AppCode regularly myself. But, uh, but I did reference your, uh, your, your Twitter account where you've been talking about it. And, so, you know, some interesting stuff that you've been doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you uh, who don't remember it, it's, uh, his Twitter account is Bordzo, which is B-O-R-E-D-Z-O. And I was thinking just this morning when I was putting together these notes, it is unfortunate that board has more than one spelling. Yes. Yes. Because otherwise it, I could just say, you know, the word board plus Z-O. But I have right. To yeah. So, okay. So, and uh, I guess I was going to say if there's anything else you wanted to add about yourself, but I guess you, you kind of introduced yourself. I will note that you appear to be an avid Minecraft player. Yes. yes. I've, I've been... Playing a little bit too much Minecraft in the past few <laughs> days and posting screenshots of various things on my Twitter account. Sure, sure. Well, I'm not sure there is a, like a non-extreme amount of Minecraft. Either you're not mm. playing it or you're playing it too much. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah, you're either addicted or you're a teetotaler. Right. Okay, so before we get started with the topic, I've got a little bit of follow-up. Actually, you have a little bit of follow-up. Um, so in our episode 33, recent episode, Flattery Will Get You Everywhere, or Flattery, I don't know how you pronounce it without the E there. Uh, flattery. Did, fl- flattery, yeah, that's right, that's right, Flattery. There you go. <laughs> uh, Wolf had mentioned that, uh, he, so we've been talking about uh, the effect of sandboxing on inter-application communication, and he mentioned Growl. And uh, I guess he's, he made the assumption that Growl had changed how it handled inter-application communication for the well, sake it, of sandboxing. it did, but um, it wasn't just for sandboxing reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, early in the... Um, when we first started doing the move, I was the lead developer. And I'm not anymore, but I was at the time. Um, and we we wanted... We wanted one input for all notifications. We wanted all notifications to be coming over the same pipe. 
And that is the GNTP, Growl Notification Transfer Protocol, or Pro- Transport Protocol um, socket. And it's TCP-based. Um, we had a UDP-based protocol, which we were using for cross-platform communication, but apparently UDP causes some problems for sysadmins. Um, we had a TCP-based protocol, which used Cocoa Distributed Objects, but that's not cross-platform. And right. the UDP-based protocol also didn't have as much functionality as using DO did. And we also used Apple events for some things, and we used distributed notifications early on, which is what uh, Wolf was talking about in that episode, mm-hmm. uh, using distributed notifications for his own project. So we basically decided to solve all of these problems at once, and the way we did that was with GNTP. So it's a TCP-based protocol. It is how Growl handles notifications nowadays, how it receives them, how it forwards them. Um, So it is the first-class way to exchange notifications with Growl, and it is documented. We wrote up a spec with the guy who does Growl for Windows, and we also invited other developers of other notification systems to participate. And so it's cross-platform. So we really did solve all those problems at once. And Mm -hmm. one of the benefits later on was when we decided to go into the App Store and around that time I left. And um, since then, the current team have actually gotten it into the App Store. Um, It plays well with sandboxing. As you mentioned during the episode, or maybe Wolf mentioned, I don't remember. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it uses a TCP-based socket, and it uses Bonjour to advertise it. And that works. works. And, it, mm-hmm. and it plays well with the rules. Yep. Cool. Okay, so, so uh, for our topic this week, <clears throat> it came about in kind of an a unusual way. Uh, so I used to write text adventure games. And so, uh, Peter, do you know what, what those are? I'm assuming you do. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think I've played at least one of yours, although I don't remember which oh, yeah. one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so how would you describe what a text adventure game is? It is a story very much like the old choose-your-own-adventure um, game books, mm-hmm. except you're not limited to a certain selection of choices that the author gave you, like to go west, turn to page 163, to go east, go turn to page 64. You can go whichever direction you want, as long as there's an exit in that direction. You can do anything that you can think of and can express to the game. You can say, I want to ask this person about that. Um, so... It's a story in which there is a narrator and you play one of the characters. Right. So the single, single sentence uh, mm-hmm. sum up of it. Uh, I would say a role-playing game in text form. Right. I, I, I would put it as uh, experiencing an interactive story through terminal.app. <laughs> right? Because you're typing in commands. It's all, it's all text. So in any case, yeah. I had... I had By done, day, we didn't have anything so sophisticated as right. Terminal.app for playing text adventures. <laughs> right. Uh, history, especially, was sometimes mm-hmm. missing from these kind of games. Um, so I wrote a tweet at the beginning of, of January of this year uh, saying something about my, my past as a text adventure game programmer. And uh, Uli Kersterer, who is our other uh, guest co-host for Edge Cases, uh, tweeted back, uh, Ooh, all your exploits and lessons learned from text adventure gaming... 
sounds like good future education topics. And so I was thinking about that. And actually, I do think I'm going to do an episode on adventure games uh, overall. I think that would be an interesting topic. But as far as the lessons learned for uh, Cocoa Development, which is what I do now, I'm not sure there's that much overlap. Um, it's just They're just not very similar in what you do with them. Uh, creating a sort of a, a completely self-contained world uh, entirely through through text versus, you know, buttons and content from servers and all sorts of other things that you that you normally do in, in, in iOS and, and Mac apps. And so then I thought, okay, development isn't that similar. What about what about testing? And in fact testing is is different as well, but it's different in ways that, that make for something interesting to talk about. Because when you're talking about testing for apps, for servers, for, for websites, for anything like that, you generally like if, if a company says, well I need we need to do we need to test this application they'll hire somebody or hire a couple people and they'll just keep those people on for good. You know, they're permanent employees. But for text adventure games, what I found when I was writing games and what I saw other people do as well is that you would need at least two different groups of testers. You'd need the people who sort of helped you through, you know, figuring out the bugs and giving you feedback for, let's say the first, the first two thirds of your development cycle. But then once you were sort of done with the, the, the rewrites done with sort of changing things around such that now you have a game that you want to release. What you really needed was a second group of people because the first group of people had already had that story that you were telling fixed in their mind. They already had their first impression set. And so you really needed someone to come in and say, well, okay, I'm going to look at the story fresh and not remember all the, all the old versions of it. So I can give you advice on, well, is the final version, you know, does it have the right pacing? Are the puzzles okay? Are the characters, does everything make sense? Is it, is it satisfying? And you really, you really needed another batch of people to do that. So that was that was what I was thinking in terms of, of testing there. And the best ones, am I right, are the ones who think of the things that you would never think of. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's it, it's a different um, uh, a different set of um, subjects that you act on, but. So, so, but it's the same sort of thing, right? So the thing that I had heard from from testers was that what you really want to see in a tester is someone who, you know, you talked about going in different directions. Like, let's say you're in a room and you go through the door to the north. A really good tester, after they go through that door and they, they open the door and they go through it, will close the door and see what happens. See if everything still makes sense in your description. And also try to go south. Right, go, go in the other direction as well. Right, because mm-hmm. if you have, let's say... a like you're playing music in the room that you're coming from. And so the description in the new room is, well, and you hear music from the South. Well, if you close the door, do you still hear that? Do you still see that description mm-hmm. or, or is it, you know, maybe you, the, the music is muted or whatever, whatever. So it's just, you know, Hey, does, does, does the text make sense with this? And, and you get that same thing with testers in Cocoa applications or other sorts of applications that they'll, if you have like, say a side panel, that comes up that shows you something, you know, and maybe that lets you, you know, you select something and you can edit it from the side panel or whatever, you know, they'll also test every combination of those uh, UI elements together. Well, if you're in the middle of editing something, can I close the sidebar? Uh, well, what about closing the sidebar when I'm not editing something? So, so yeah, you got someone who's, you need someone who's detail oriented enough to, to think through that, that mm-hmm. grid of, of potential 
potential states. Everything and its inverse and its converse and every orthogonal direction and so on. Sure. Okay, but so let's step back a bit and sort of maybe try to define QA engineer a little bit better. And another way to look at that is, is are, they, are they really engineers? Um, and that's an interesting question to me because most of the QA engineers that I've, I've talked to, that I've, I've worked with, didn't have CS degrees. Um, so it's interesting. Now, actually, I think this is a good point to bring up the quote, or not the quote, the link that you sent me, Peter, from Penny Arcade. <laughs> the, they had a, a comic in 2010, January, called Here's Your Reality Program. And it was about a uh, contest that was held. I don't remember exactly the details. Uh, uh, I think it was Sony that was running Sony. it. Mm-hmm. And you had to give them a little movie of yourself, and you were competing with other people to, to win. And what you won was a chance to be the QA tester for a particular you know, game or something that they were working on. And what you know, the, the humor of the of the panel was that this isn't really something that you you want to win. This isn't really something that you would think of as a reward. So they mm-hmm. they portray testing as sort of a bleak, burnout inducing, low on the totem pole position, uh, hundred hour weeks, mm-hmm. uh, just crazy. And there was one thing that uh, Tycho mentioned that he had a friend who was testing the Xbox, mm-hmm. I think, and he said like his job was opening and closing the CD tray all day. Yeah, that was from the uh, fourth panel episode that accompanied that strip. Right. And we'll put these uh, links in the show notes. Yeah. Now, the app testers that I've known don't seem to have been in quite so appalling conditions. <laughs> so they would work normal days. Uh, and, you know, they wouldn't just, you know, press, press one button anyway to, to do it. Uh, they would test kind of all aspects of, a, of an application or a website or whatever. So there'd be some, some variety. And also, in my experience, there's no company that would really waste uh, an entire salary on someone just pressing the same button over and over. Like, if, if that weren't something that he had mentioned about his friend, I would think it was like a, you know, a, apocryphal. It was a, a, a myth mm-hmm. out there because, really, that's just, you know, they, they need, they would want more from you than that. Like, like <laughs> you would maybe press that button and do this other stuff. Well, even but, like Jerry said, can't they get some Lego Mindstorm shit up in here? <laughs> Well, that's actually. Like, can't they automate this instead of hiring a human sure. being to push this button? <laughs> well, that's and that's where we get into thing where when you talk about the definition of what a uh, QA engineer does, so they do push the button, and you have to have the mindset to be able to do that. And as we said, they have to have the mindset to to both do that and do that over and over again, but still keep their mind turned on mm-hmm. because they have to be able to notice things about it. Uh, whereas if it was just, um, you know, like working on a, uh, what do you call it? A conveyor belt working on a, a assembly line, you might mm-hmm. be able to turn off your mind a little bit more. Although even there, probably you need to pay attention. So, so it's, it's this interesting combination of, of drudgery and hyper vigilance. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things they were mentioning in the fourth panel episode is, um, that when you were testing something, and especially if you found a fault, if you found some kind of problem, um, you had to write a report, and you had to explain. You not 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 just explain how you um, discovered the fault, but also explain to someone else how they would reproduce the fault. Right. You know, this is the familiar steps to reproduce part of filing a radar. 
And um, when um, the new build came in, you got to go through all your old reports and follow your own steps to reproduce that you hopefully wrote with a clear mind. Right. Right. And, and, uh, right. So someone else needs to be able to reproduce the steps, but yeah, it's interesting. You talk about radar. Um, it was occurring to me that radar, like the radar application from Apple, the people who use that the most are the QA engineers. Mm -hmm. In some ways, radar is an app for them. Because they're filing, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would bet it's about 50%. Like when you get bugs, you know, for example, you know, I worked on Xcode at Apple and I would bet that, you know, well, we got a lot of bugs from the outside from people because of course developers love to file bugs. <laughs> um, I would bet that about half the bugs that we got were just from, from those QA engineers. So, you know, thousands of bugs from a whole variety of people and then thousands of bugs all from the same, you know, 10 people, same 20 people. Filing them in the course of testing or um, just like third? Yes. Yeah, okay. because, because they're testing, they're testing, you know, Xcode or whatever app you're working on. They're testing that a lot before you ever send it out to for beta, uh, beta release or, or final release. That's really where you get most of your testing from. Mm -hmm. Now, I would be curious, actually, because almost every company I've worked at has said, okay, well, you're testing it for the most part. But then we're going to do, you know, before we actually release, now we're going to like dog food it or, or do a, a bigger release or whatever. And I guess, you know, so there is, you know, I said QA engineers, you know, they're, they're permanent employees, but I guess there is usually some sense on the part of employers that we do need other sets of eyes on this rather than mm -hmm. just those same people. And I think that's good. I think that's what you need to have happen. Um, it yeah, it's like one of my recurring thoughts about Xcode is that um, the people who work on it, or at least currently work on it, I don't know when you were working on it, um, there's there's two sides to the whole dog fooding issue. Um, the, the proverb in question being that you need to eat your own dog food. Right. That's one side of it. You, need, you do need to use your own product and... Um, basically be the first line of testing even before the QA people get their hands on it. Um, the other side of it is you need to sample other people's dog food once in a while. Like It would be good if the people who work on Xcode were to take a week and use AppCode for a while or use TextMate or something other than Xcode um, to get an idea of where their app, in this case Xcode, is behind. And... Um, where sure. they can improve over the competition as well as improve mm -hmm. their own stuff just on its own merits. Sure. And I, I think, so that's true of, of the developers, but that is also true of the QA testers. And for a reason that I was, I was going to get to, which is that these days in software development, you don't necessarily have, well, you, you almost never have the case where someone will define what an application does down to the smallest detail. Nobody really ever does that, that yeah. I've seen. What you do is you say, well, here's, okay, here, here's the features. And then the developer goes through and implements the features as he or she sees fit. And then it goes to the tester after that, to the, to the QA engineer. And they've got to make sense out of all that because they've got this vague sounding document which says, well, here's what it's supposed to do. But they've got to translate that into, okay, here are my test cases. Here are the actual steps I'm going to go through for each feature, for each uh, 
potential edge case of it. And this is actually, so the other definition of the QA engineer, in addition to someone who likes to press the button, is <laughs> someone who has to, they have to like writing up these test cases. And, you know, there's just tons of them. There's just, they've got to keep this information somewhere. And I guess I've seen some cases where they basically they don't write it down and they just keep it all in their head. But most mm. of the, the better companies I've been at, well, no, we're going to give you this way to, to write it down so, so you can follow these steps again the next time. Yeah, there's definitely a bus factor problem if they're keeping it all in their heads. <laughs> but they can't do everything. Like if you really were to try to write down every single variant of every single step, that would be far too many test cases. So they need to they need to cut it down. They need to keep it something reasonable. And they need to make sort of value judgments as to what, what I'm going to test each time and what I'm not. And since it can't be everything, it's got to be some subset. And so then you're really starting to uh, describe a job where, you know, they're not just drones. They really have to put a lot of thought into this. And so, you know, you've got to get both sides of it. You've got to be the person who likes to press the button, but the person who likes to really think through organizing lots of information, too much information, really. And, and that's really hard. And evaluating it objectively, which is something that um, at least open source projects tend to run into when they expose their bug tracker to the public who use the application like we we used to see this on adium when we had basically all of the properties of our bug tickets um set as essentially world writable was that users would file tickets which was good and they would set their own tickets to major or critical or something <laughs> like that right. <laughs> because of course mm. their bug was critical to them um but depending on the bug it might not actually be that objectively important. We might be able to push that, put that off for one or two or three releases or even just whenever we get around to it, if it really is something minor. Right. Well, and the other side of the coin is oftentimes what I've seen with QA uh, bugs is that they're basically feature requests, right? So they're, they're thinking in their head, it should do this. And, you know, that's not written down anywhere, but that's just them thinking, well, I've seen other applications do this, uh, or I just think it should do this. And so really, uh, I don't know about the percentage, but there's a, there's a certain non-trivial percentage of, of bugs that, that I would get, where it would basically be kind of them telling me, think through your app a little better. <laughs> you know, it should, it should really do this. And you've mm -hmm. got to have that conversation because you didn't have that conversation before because you're kind of rushing through to get everything done as quickly as you can that, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we should do this. And so, you know, sometimes you say, well, yeah, that's a great idea. We should do that. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you say, well, no, we, we, can, we can punt that for now. But it is definitely a very, a very good trait to have in a, in a QA engineer that they'll, they're not just testing what you said that they should test. Mm -hmm. They're testing what, um, kind of what the app should be. So, and, and definitely it, a good thought exercise for developers generally. Sure, sure. And let's see, so another aspect of this, so I said that most QA engineers have it better than, than the, the Penny Arcade guys mentioned, but they do mm. tend to have it, there's a lot of downsides to being a QA engineer in, in the modern software development environment. And the way I was phrasing it in my notes here was that failures roll downhill in that everything that, that was wrong with your development process from the start tends to come to a head 
at the point where the QA engineer has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. If you were sort of fuzzy on your requirements and so the, the developer kind of did the wrong thing, if you, if you're sort of compressing the schedule quite a bit, so, so, you know, the developer didn't have enough time to finish everything. So their, their time, the time that they spent making it kind of edged into testing time. Well, the QA engineer has to sort of deal with all that. Well, you know, no, we can't give you as much time as, as you should have because we didn't get it done, but we still want to release it. Um, there are these structural problems with, with, <laughs> with the app that you just have to work around while you're testing because we're not going to fix them. And all this stuff. And, you know, they just have to, they just have to deal with it. They can say, no, 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 you guys screwed up. I want more time. That tends not to happen. They tend to have to just deal. Mm-hmm. So, so it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. It can be very stressful. And what I found recently, and maybe it's the last year or two, two year two or three, is that it really does seem be, to be difficult to find QA engineers anymore. That, uh, and this is also true of developers these days. And, and I'm, you know, talking about the, uh, the the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. But I think it's I don't know I don't know if it's true everywhere else. But that you know you have all these different requirements for a person. Well, they've got to like pressing the button. They've got to like. Uh, spending lots of time running test cases. They have to be able to deal with the stress of, of, the, of the position. And now we need to hire three of them. You know, and now we, well, where are they? Where are these people? And it is sort of interesting, you know, how, how do you find people who, who have all of those traits, who can do that well? And then the last one actually was that they, they have to be willing to be put in a role where they're not creators, and this is actually something, so I didn't, I wasn't a, a developer to start off with. I, I did some other stuff. And when I actually started becoming a developer, I ran into a, an issue that was very interesting to me. It's many years ago. But I ran into writer's block, actually. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't think that you would, that writer's block would be something that would happen to developers because, you know, well, you've got these, these rigid requirements and you can just go ahead and do those and fulfill it and you'll be done. But it's really the same thing as a writer in the sense that when you're starting off, you get a blank sheet of paper, you get a blank file, and you've got to fill that in. You've got to make yeah, that in more happen. ways than that, too. I've said before that programming is writing. Writing yeah. code is writing. You have to express what you want. You have to say what you want to say. You have to say it clearly. You have to say it unambiguously. And if there's any confusion about what you meant or mistake in what you meant then it's ultimately your fault and you have to fix it. (laughs) Yes. And I can't imagine anymore. I can't imagine being in a position where I, where I wasn't doing that. And most of the people that I follow on Twitter, that I follow their blogs, that I listen to their podcasts, they're also of the same sort of mindset. Hey, I'm, I'm creating something. This is, this is what I want to do. And this is what I am doing. And when you've got your, your QA engineers sort of next to you doing that, well, I want them to be creative as well. I want them to, be, to have their eyes open, to, to be smart. But yet they're not creating the same thing that you are. They're responding to what you're doing. And, uh, and that is Your job it, is to make it. Their job is to break it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, the second part of that is it's, it's always been interesting to me. First time I, I became a developer and, and doing this stuff, that they let us do this when we're just so obviously bad at it. Right, because it's built into the system that we're going to make, you know, mistakes like lots of mistakes. We're just going to screw a whole bunch of things up. That somebody has to actually go ahead and try to find the problems, because we know you're going to make them. 
Like that's, mm-hmm. that seems, you know, when you, when you step back over it, that seems crazy. Like what, you know, can't they, can they just find better developers than this? What, what's going on? So that's always been, uh, been interesting. I guess, you know, what other, I guess there are testers in other fields, right? When you, know, you make uh, washing machines or whatever, you know, they've got to, got to test that each one works before they send it out. But, but software development is such a, such a, a long running process. You know, it could take you a year, a year and a half to make a operating system or, or Xcode or whatever. And, you know, just you keep finding bugs all the time. And so, so yeah. And another thing is, I think most of our listeners for this podcast, for a lot of the podcasts that I listen to, are probably developers rather than QA engineers. So I'm I'm talking about this from a developer perspective. Like I haven't seen a a, a blog, for example, from a tester perspective. Have you ever seen anything like that? No, I haven't. Yeah, could be interesting. I, I think it would be interesting to mm-hmm. to do that. So okay. And all right, so the last thing I want to talk about, and it's maybe a little bit of a short episode today, <laughs> is uh, I want to talk a bit about automation. Mm-hmm. Now, I've never seen a, a testing job which didn't involve, you know, again, pressing the button manually to some degree. But one thing that I've tried to do when I've had QA engineers as part of my team, but which has always been a bit rough, is to try to get more automation into the into the process, into the mix. And I did, I have talked about automation uh, before in the episode. Uh, you can't run a script to test feel, I believe. I don't have it written mm-hmm. down for me. Where I said, you know, there are problems with automating things. Um, but the but the allure of it is really, is really strong because if you can get a system, you guys, you said, if you get like a Mindstorm set up such that it presses the button for you, then at the very least, you're saving some amount of time from that QA engineer for that career engineer. And since they always have more to test than they can ever test, the more of that that you can that you can automate, the better. Not only that, but you also have that advantage of reproducibility. You don't have to worry about them pushing the button at an odd angle or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. You, you know, they you always you're certain once you get your test working properly that it's always going to push the button at the same angle with the same amount of force. And it also gives you um a sort of related benefit, which is customizability or configurability, where um, you can actually change the parameters to the test to test it different th- different ways or to test different mm-hmm. things. Like I've been working on this little video player app um, for the Mac, and there's a feature in it that I'm not going to describe in too much detail, but it has a core image filter on it um, to refine its appearance. And I wanted to, um, I, I was iterating on the appearance of that filter. And I wanted, you know, I was changing the parameters in the code and compi- edit, compile, run, that familiar refrain. Right. And that was getting really old, really fast. So I actually bashed up a quick popover um, that was just permanently attached to the uh, to the controller um, for the purposes of testing and debugging and iterating and put three sliders in it, one for each of the parameters to the filter and ran the app, played with the sliders, found the values that I wanted and those are the new values. And that probably took it no more than half the time of another dozen or two dozen edit compile run cycles. Right. Well, wasn't there a uh, 
a story about Steve Jobs where they talked about pretty much the mm-hmm. same thing. That he, he kept <laughs> tweaking stuff, and then they said, finally... The calculator gonna... construction set. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's on folklore. Yes, yes, and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes mm-hmm. as well. But what's, what's interesting to me about, about this specifically is that what I've seen is that making these kind of automated tests tends in many respects to be the domain of the developer rather than the QA engineer. Mm-hmm. The tests that you write in Xcode for the, the OC unit um, right. based tests, they're in Objective-C. They're really not something that that you can necessarily expect a lot of your testers to because your testers are not generally developers. And with the, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it, the UI automation stuff. Um, was in, in, in instruments? In instruments, right. What's interesting there is that they made that use JavaScript. And mm-hmm. I think the reason behind that, like I was a little annoyed at that at first because I was like, well, I want to write these in Objective-C. <laughs> but really, I was not the target for that kind of testing. I think the idea being that uh, QA engineers who are probably at most familiar with scripting languages can do this and might want to do that over working in, in a compiled language. So I think that was that was the idea there. But sort of, sort of my last automation story is that I knew someone at Apple who, and it was, it was an interesting situation. He was actually an engineer, actually was a software developer, but he joined a particular team because he knew the people on it. At least, uh, this is my understanding of what happened. I, I guess I never really talked to them about it in too much detail. But my understanding was he joined a team where he, was, he, he knew all the people on it, and, and so he, he really liked working with them. He was a software engineer, but the only position open on the team was as a, a QA engineer. So he joined that team, but then since he was a developer, he kind of acted quite differently as far as testing is concerned because he tried to automate the hell out of everything. Going mm-hmm. like he, you know, he set up lots of test machines and he wrote lots of scripts and lots of, lots of infrastructure to make that sort of thing work. And I do wonder if getting that sort of you know, full bore approach to testing where you're willing to not just, um, you know, maybe fiddle a little bit with JavaScript, but willing to really set up your own sort of custom setup, custom programs, custom machines, custom everything else is something that you would need to hire a developer for rather than someone who's, who's again, who's mainly just pushing the buttons. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the old programmer's laziness. You know, if the machine can do it, we want the machine to do it. That's right. That's right. And it's, and it can be tough, right? Because it could take a long time to set up that sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to convince your boss that it's required. You've got It's a down to, payment instead of yeah. technical debt. Yeah. Now, the, the thing that I wonder about, because I actually, I've seen some of it. Like I've seen a couple of different variants of automated tests. I've seen people attempt to, to test the app as a black box. So they use, what I saw was using AppleScript to test it. Mm-hmm. And sort of to, uh, push the buttons with the, mm-hmm. you know with the program instead of pushing the button with their finger, and that didn't work that well because um, there was just too many ways that that sort of thing could break. And I did talk about that a little bit in the automated testing uh, episode. Um, so it's almost I think it's it's generally better to have lower level tests if you can do it that don't re- rely on the app launching correctly each time and don't rely on you know the finder not. You're not, you're not hogging CPU for uh, Spotlight or anything like that. Um, it might depend on yeah. when you do it. Like if you're first creating the application and your interface is in flux, then yeah, UI scripting is going to fall on its face. On right. the other hand, if you're doing it later on for like one five two, um, 
your interface is probably kind of stable by then. And you can probably set up some UI scripting tests and start testing at the higher level, um, which is not to say that you shouldn't do the lower tests as well, but you can do those earlier and then build up once your user interface is more stable. Well, and one other thing that I mentioned on the uh, the uh, automation episode was that what I found in automation is the things that you are able to test easily are usually the things that don't break to begin with. Mm-hmm. So if, if really what you're trying to do is actually find breakages, you don't necessarily gain a whole lot out of, automa- out of automating those particular tests. But what's interesting with, with QA engineering is that their job is to keep testing things even if they're not likely to break. Mm-hmm. Because you know they're trying to do the regression test. They're trying to make sure everything really still works exactly the way it does. And so you can save them time by saying, well, you know what, this is 99.99% unlikely to ever break. <laughs> but I take that out of your test cycle. Now you've got more time. So, so I would, I can see the, the use of it in that mm-hmm. case. And I don't know that I agree exactly that, um, that, um, I totally lost track of what you just said. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. That, that they're never um, going to find, uh, that things are never going to break. Um, sort of. Yeah. So, um, in my, limited experience with unit testing which i did on the adm project mm-hmm. we had at least one summer of code student who did some of the unit testing and then i did some of it as well and yeah. we had some other developers contribute some as well um but my experience has been that when you first write the first unit tests for some class that you will find bugs that you yeah. didn't know were there Right. And well, part of that is just inadequate specification, like, okay, yeah. you didn't really write down what happens if you pass nil here or something like that. And some of it, sometimes it's just straight up broken and you never knew until you actually wrote a test for it. Okay. Yeah, well, this also uh, tracks a little bit of what I was saying in the other episode, which is I like the, I like the automated test, and you were saying this as well, when I'm, when I'm actually still writing it. So as a way to enforce... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the potential, you know, all the different states that things can get in, get into. Well, as I've as I'm writing it, when I'm not quite done writing it yet, or when I've just finished writing it, I can test that the code does what I want in more states than I could if I just if I just pressed the button myself. And that so that's good during the development cycle. But again, after the development cycle, what I found is it really didn't break again. And and this is mm-hmm. it's counterintuitive because you might think, well, you know, if I change code around that code, if I change code that's associated with that code, maybe that'll break that code. And again, I just found in my experience that, you know, you don't, it doesn't tend to break again. Well, regression tests, you, you usually don't see a regression in committed code. Um, the purpose of regression tests is, in my experience, to prevent you from committing that code in the first place, because you yeah. write some change that breaks the test, that makes the test fail, and you run it, you run the tests, and you discover, oh, that change breaks that test, and then you fix it, and then you commit it. Uh, mm-hmm. So you catch that before it ever even entered version control history. Right, right. So it kind of makes it invisible when you're looking over the version control history, and you don't see um, this regression test got broken, this got fixed, this got broken, this got fixed. You don't see that because it happened before anybody committed it. Sure. Sure, I, I could see that. So, okay, that's, that's pretty much all I have to, to say about QA engineers. Do you have any other uh, thoughts, Peter? Um, 
Not really. Um, just sort of a more vague suggestion that people should check out the writings and a couple of videos by Brett Victor, who basically has several good ideas about how math could be taught better and how programs could be better made, not in the sense of craftsmanship, but in the sense of tool making that we could do a whole lot better. We could have much better tools, but we just don't yet. And they just could be so much better. They could be more interactive. They could be more responsive. And his, his website is worrydream.com. And he's got a couple of, uh, videos. One of them was a keynote from some conference. It's not on his own channel. It's on somewhere else. I'll find the link for you. Okay. And there's one other that is on his own um, Vimeo channel and is also on his website. And that is a demo of basically a little calculus tool, except you don't actually write D over DT or whatever. You just do it interactively. And it shows you the graph and it shows you, you can have it show you all the different combinations. And it just, you don't have to think about this, all these Greek symbols and stuff. You actually think about what's happening, what the problem that you're trying to solve. And the same thing for um, programming. Instead of thinking about these abstract symbols and names and more or less unidentified numbers, you actually think about, okay, width and height and what shape are we creating? It's more interactive rather than just typing code into an editor. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that stuff not just makes it easier to actually create programs or whatever your problem you're trying to solve, but also makes it easier to test the result. If you can see the output and in the case of programming, even see the shape of the program then you're that much better able to find holes in it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, I'll definitely put those uh, links in the show notes so people can check those out. Okay, so please visit our website, edgecasesshow.com, all one word, for show notes, a link to our podcast on iTunes, and more. And you can find us individually on Twitter, me, A Pontius, A-P-O-N-T-I-O-U-S, and Peter, I said it already, but I'll say it again, Bordzo, B-O-R-E-D-Z-O, and Wolf, who should be back next week, uh, the word rent, R-E-N-T, plus Z, plus S-C-H. We'll see you next time.